This episode is sponsored by Lloyds Banking Group, serving Britain's communities and households for more than 250 years. Hello and welcome to Room of Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today was once described as the most influential non-elected person in Downing Street. Her role as Tony Blair's gatekeeper began as a research assistant, where a makeshift desk was made for her out of an upside-down bin. In the 1997 landslide majority for Labour, my guest was springboarded into number 10, where she became an alliance broker with the businesses and editors in the media, including Murdoch's empire. After decades by Blair's side, she moved on to the corporate world, first as Director of Communications for BP, which began another successful chapter in the private sector across industries from the Royal Academy of Engineering to Anglo-American PLC. She is now a senior advisor at Edelman. My guest today is Angie Hunter. Thank you very much for coming in today, Angie. It's great to have you in person at The Spectator. Is this the first time at our office? Oh, no, no. I've been here on many occasions to your fantastic summer parties, which I'm not sure if you still have. I haven't been, anyway, I haven't been invited to them for some years. I don't know what that says. We'll blame it on COVID, but <laughs> yeah. we'll obviously work on that immediately. Oh, yeah, I had a word with Fraser. <laughs> uh, now, on this podcast, we tend to start rewinding the hands of time and asking about your childhood. Would you describe it as a happy one? Yeah, yeah, really happy. I was born in uh, Kuala Lumpur, in what was then called Malaya, in 1955. So, ten years after the war. So there was still a bit of sort of war stuff around. There'd been a thing called the emergency in Malaya, which was a sort of Chinese infiltration. In fact, my great friend's sister was shot in the head in her garden by a guerrilla fighter coming out of the jungle. So it was sort of very present, the sort of the war and sort of post-war. But it was also the post-war euphoria of everyone having, you know, been disbanded from the army, all sort of taking up life again. And there were sort of great parties and drinking and all of that, of my parents' generation, of course. And they were in rubber planting. That's what they were all doing there. And it was just a very, very privileged upbringing, I have to say. But my mum, she went off and trained as a teacher, actually, when I was little, in order, I suppose, some very basic training, in order to set up a school on the estate and she ran the hospital there or was very involved in the hospital so I grew up with sort of strong social conscience really or, or people with a strong social conscience although it was a very sort of colonial and privileged upbringing and then of course we were all sent back to boarding school which is what one did in those days my poor brother was sent back when he was six I mean from Kuala Lumpur to Kent at six. <laughs> you say that to young parents now, and they sort of virtually fall over. And I came back when I was 10. And as you just referenced, obviously moving from Kuala Lumpur to Kent, I mean, you were in Scotland, but probably felt quite drab in comparison. Going to Scotland? Yeah. From Malaysia, as it yeah. had then become. Not just drab, I mean, bloody freezing. That was the main problem I had and I was in a frightful boarding school in St Andrews in Fife and we and water froze on our in our cups our drinks you know our water cups overnight but a big thing that had happened to me when I was 11 was that my mother was killed in a car crash when I was at school 
you know, I was at school, I was out playing netball, and I was summoned in to see the headmistress. I can remember it, actually, to this day. And summoned in to see the headmistress. I was 11 years old, and my aunt was sitting in the study, the headmistress's study, weeping. So I knew immediately, you know, something absolutely catastrophic had happened. She just turned to me and said, oh, darling, you know, afraid your mummy's dead. So, uh, so that was a pretty big thing to happen when you're 11. I then came under the care of my father, who had not had an awful lot to do with us, our upbringing. And I, and I enjoyed quite an unusual upbringing under him, really. He, he, for example, he taught me to drive when I was about 12 in order to drive him around to the club in the evening in Brechin, in, on the east coast of uh, Scotland, in uh, Angus, it's where we lived. And I would drive him, the, drive past the police, and I had a big cushion on the front seat, and they'd say, um, oh, there's Miss Hunter taking her father, father to the club. So it was... No one, no one ever stopped you? And no, no they say. waved me by. They waved me past. I mean, it was a different era. And then, you know, my, my granny came to live with us, which was quite unusual. To have, my mother, his mother-in-law, you know, not his own mother, my, my mother's mother. They got on, you know, famously. She was very eccentric as well. I can remember, you know, we had horses and all of that stuff at, at home. And I remember going riding and coming in, I suppose I was about 13. And I'd done a, a wee in my jodhpurs. And my <laughs> grandmother said to me, now, darling, she said, I think it's about time you started smoking then. And sure enough, you know, there was the big silver cigarette box on the table and opened it up and I was given a cigarette and those big Ronson lighters, big table lighters, you know, lit up and off I went. And I suppose I was about 40. And I'm not advocating this, by the way. I'm not saying that this is the right way to bring up children and I certainly didn't do it with my it children. It have done you okay, though. It was fine. <laughs> you know, it didn't... It didn't. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it was a very, it was a very free, uh, you know, I had a very free sort of period between 11 and, well, 11 onwards, shall I say. And my dad, you know, he had no idea what I was up to. He, you know, I'd say to him I was off to stay with my friend Lorna in Edinburgh and we would go, we hitchhiked down to London. We just literally stood on the road and hitchhiked down to London for a night and then hitchhiked back the next day. No, um... Amongst all these adventures, you mentioned how it's quite an academic school, obviously pushing you. Had you started to think what you might want to do for a career? Did you have any early ambitions? No, I really know? didn't have early ambitions. I didn't know what I wanted to be, other than I wanted to be something. I knew that. I knew it wasn't a profession like medicine or law, not at that stage anyway, but I did want to do something. In fact, no, before I went to university, I was expelled from this school, St Leonard's in St Andrews, for being what they called again the establishment, which means against the establishment. You know, I was I, I did very naughty things like befriend people in years young, you know, junior to me, which was very frowned upon. Smoked, of course, that was still going on. Smoked behind the bike shed. Just following your parents' advice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and just always questioning the rules. You know that. You know, in a very, very, uh, I, I thought, a very well-measured way. But they perhaps didn't think quite in quite the same way. 
So I, I did. I was I was asked to leave, as they as they call it, in uh, uh, when I was fifteen, sixteen, and I went to this fantastic place in Oxford called St Clair's Hall, which was a place for girls who'd been at boarding schools, public schools, who were smart and who'd railed against the, the the rules of their schools, all who'd been expelled. So it was full of these really feisty, clever women, many of whom... In fact, you've probably had some of them on your programme. I mean, it sounds like a great gag. Um, just, just to rewind a tiny bit, because we're talking about, obviously, careers and where you ended up later, one of the things that is often mentioned in the various profiles of you is the fact that you first met Tony Blair at the age of 15 because you were both going to schools. Can you talk us through that? You weren't quite yet expelled at this While point. While I was at St Leonard's, I was about, I was 14. I must have been 14, perhaps 14 and a half. And I, one of these parties I was, I was at, I was in Forfa, actually, Forfa in Angus. Chris Cato, I remember his name, it was his house. And you went, and the opening gambit at these parties was, what school do you go to? Right. Sounds so like university. This guy, <laughs> this guy says to me, what school do you go to? And I said, St. Leonard's. And I said, what school do you go to? He said, Fetty's. And he said, St. Leonard's, St. Leonard's. He said, do you know someone called Marie Stewart? And I said, I've never said this on the radio before. So, sorry, Marie. <laughs> uh, Marie Stewart. And uh, I said, yes, yes, she's actually a very good friend of mine. He said, oh, great. He said, because I've got the real hots for her. And I basically became his conduit at that moment, not... I hasten to add, in the uh, sort of procuring of women, but just his go-between. And we became just fantastically good friends. So you mentioned the school that you moved to, and then you got married quite young and had two children, but you also attended further education in terms of Brighton Polytechnic to study English. How did you balance everything, and what were you thinking career-wise you were aiming for at that time? All I knew was that I had to get a degree. I was, I felt, I'd gone to university just when, because my father died when I was very young as well, when I was 23, 22 or 20, when I was at university. And I, and I didn't go back to university because he died in front of me of a heart attack in Scotland, in our house. So it was a sort of unbelievable shock. You know, he wasn't ill, just bang down dead. So I... I stayed at home and, you know, just did all the probate and sold the house and packed it up and uh, we had a housekeeper and all of that, making sure she got settled. So I stayed there for months. So you decided to go back to the Polytechnic to focus on studying after taking the break. But are you starting to think about what you're going to do next? I decided to do this degree at the Brighton Poly, although it is now called the University of Brighton, and uh, I'm very heavily involved in it, actually. The other thing about it, of course, was they didn't discourage people with children. And I had a one-year-old. I had a one-year-old and a -a two-and-a-half-year-old. And I used to drag them along with me to the creche and stayed up all night doing my essays and looked after them in the day. But just, you know, when you're 25, 26, 27, you're so full of beans... And it was, I just took having kids in my stride. Great husband, Nick, really helpful and encouraging of me doing the degree. And then it was during the degree, my, in the third year, we had to do a thing called an ILA, an independent learning assignment. So I, I rang up my mate, Tony, who had this, by this time become a 
become a MP and said, look, can I come and hang around? I, we, we get given six weeks off. Can I come and hang around with you and, you know, do a sort of report? And he said, yeah, sure. So off I went up to the House of Commons. He gave me this pa- a pass and I just bloody loved it. You know, the minute I walked in the door, I just thought, God, this is where I want to be. It was just sort of the smell of it. The, the smell of the wood and the leather and and it was also really small it's a really small chamber the, the the house of commons chamber i thought people were incredibly nice incredibly friendly polite all of that and this is pre pre google days there was a library you know that is where i went and did my research i went in as what's called a research assistant At the end of this ila he said to me tony listen you're going to go back to university he said I think when you, when you finish, you ought to come and work in here. He said, but you better get a first. So I had been trying to get a first anyway, because that, and I, you know, if I do something, I want to do it as well as I possibly can. And that was a great incentive for me. So I did, I returned, I did that. And then I literally started working for him. I think I finished on the Friday, my finals. I didn't even wait for the result. <laughs> I thought I had it in the bag. And started with him on the following Monday. And there was just me and him. My desk was an upturned bin, and I sat on a puff, and I had the metal bin as my desk. And I was going to ask you that. I mean, were you party political at the point that you started helping Tony Blair? Did you feel that you were a Labour person growing up? I had not felt a Labour person growing up. My father was a Tory and a massive fan of Margaret Thatcher. You know, he just thought she was amazing and I did too because she was a woman I just thought it's just so brilliant that we've got this woman you know as our prime minister and in fact I did vote for her again this is Scotland for you in those days my father as I said earlier you know fell down dead like two days before the election and I took our housekeeper to the polling booths to I drove her in and I walked in in the all the ladies there, you know, they, in the village hall, all just said, I'm so sorry, Miss Hunter, to hear about your father. You know, it's dreadful news. Because he was very well known around. And, of course, I was well known as the driver around. And they said to me, would you like his vote? I mean, I'd say, I don't think you're like... I, I mean, I don't want... I think, suspect oh, they'll all be passed away by now. I think we'll t- enough time trouble. has passed. I think yeah, okay. yeah. But anyway, they gave me his ballot paper. And I voted for Thatcher, or I voted to, you know, for the Tory MP there, because, for him. So that's the only time I've ever voted Conservative, but I, w- I was very, very pleased to have done so. Now, 1992, you were sent to work for Neil Kinnock. Mm-hmm. Was that with Tony's blessing? Tony, well, partly Tony was of the view that if the leader of any the party asks you to do a job, you've got to do it. It doesn't matter who you are, if you're requested... So, which I remembered and used later on, I have to say, uh, when there were certain individuals I wanted to work for us. But yeah, I went to work on the 1992 general election campaign, and I went to work for Sue Nye, who was sort of Neil's Angie, if I can put it like that. She was sort of, you know, eminent squeeze, you know, ran the whole show. And she taught me everything I know. I mean, she's super clever. Sue, super smart, attention to detail, charming and 
uh, absolutely ruthless as well. And worst case scenario, WCS and ATD I learned from her. Worst case scenario, always think of the worst possible thing that's going to happen and think about how to mitigate it beforehand. And think always attention to detail. Usually if you do ATD, you, don't, you won't get WCS. So, yeah. yeah. So uh, she, she, that was a good lesson she taught me. What, how do you think Labour would do in that election? Um, I've been watching the Blair Brown documentary. You are very I was, I was, I was in Wales, and then I came on up to London. I had hoped and hoped and hoped that somehow we were going to make it. I know that Tony and Gordon had very different views all the way through. You know, we hadn't addressed the real demands of the electorate. They still thought, you know, Labour was slightly suspect on the economy, and. Anyway, so yeah, it was a it was a disappointment for me, but on the other hand, it was an opportunity because then Margaret Beckett became the deputy leader, and I worked on her campaign at Tony's behest, uh, Tony and Gordon ever closer, you know, working. Uh, John Smith came in; they they worked really well together. But there was a frustration. Tony was definitely frustrated after '92. He, I think he thought Gordon should have stood against John, but Gordon would never have stood against John. You know, they were too close. But I think Tony's a bit more ruthless than Gordon, I think. And he thought he should have. And he, and, and he, he began to think, I think, 92, 93, 94, that we, we certainly needed to do more reform. John Smith, great as he was, different as he was from Neil, you know, was quite statist. And and then this extraordinary thing happened. I'll never forget it to this day. I was at we were at a, a, a dinner at uh, the Grosvenor House, huge big dinner uh, to launch the European elections, which were being launched the next day. And Tony was going to get up really early and fly to Scotland to launch in Aberdeen. And we were at this dinner, and John Smith made the great speech, you know, about let's all go off and you know, do our campaigning. And I went home to my home in Sussex and I I, I was pleased because I thought, I don't have to get up too early because Tony's going off to Scotland. So I don't have to be in the office at the crack of dawn. I can take the kids to school. And I did do that and I went into school. I, I was school. I went into work and up the stairs in the lift and I remember the lift doors opened and there was a guy, Peter Hyman, who worked for Donald Dewar then, he obviously came and worked for us later on, standing there weeping. And I stepped out. And I have to say, you know, the very first thing I thought, I just thought, the plane's crashed. That's why he's waiting for me. And I remember immediately, even now it makes me feel a bit funny, the tears sort of springing up in my eyes. And he said, I said, what? And he said, John. John's died. And, you know, my awful thing to say, you know, but my very first thing was, oh, you know, thank God it's not Tony. <laughs> uh, but then immediately I thought, oh, poor um, Elizabeth, you know, his wife and the girls. And I knew where the girls were travelling, you know, they were, they were in the States, his daughters. I also knew, literally as we turned the corner, I just thought, oh, my God, you know, here we go. I just knew instantly that we would have a battle between Tony and Gordon as to who, you know, who would have the leadership. I remember going into my office and sitting down and 
No, I went into my office. Robin Cook was sitting at my desk on the phone to somebody. And I went to the... Oh, the desk right now has very much been upgraded from a bin. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I had a proper desk at this point. I had a proper desk. Well, it must have been because Robin Cook was sitting at it and he would not have sat on a bin. He, uh, and I remember he just pulled me to him and sort of put his head in my bosom, which is such a sort of... I thought, I've got Robin Cook's head in my bosom. You know, what is going on? And then the phone went and it was Sarah Baxter who was then, she works for the Times now, she was then, I think, leader writer for the Evening Standard. And she just said, it was not known at this point that John had died. They were waiting to, collect, to tell the girls, his daughters, we knew he had died. And they, I think they announced it at midday, so this must have been about 10 in the morning. And I remember Sarah Baxter saying to me, I just thought I'd let you know, we're, running, we're doing a leader, and I'm going to write It Should Be Tony. And I just, I remember saying to her, please don't do that, Sarah. You know, Christ, don't do that. You know, I hadn't spoken to Tony. You know, I had no idea what was going on. I had Robin Cook's head in my bosom. Um, so it was, you know, it was very, very dramatic. It happened very, very quickly. This is where, and Sue and I, who are still to this day incredibly close, Sue and I, who worked for Neil, then she went to work for Gordon. And she and I just fixed for them to seek to meet all the time and only Sue and I did it we just rang each other up and said let's meet at your house we've often met at Sue's house we met an old girlfriend of Tony's actually in Scotland in D- at Dean Bridge met at Nick Ryden's house in Scotland or around the funeral so we met in all these secret locations they met in all these secret locations and Sue and I would sit outside the door and run and get a bottle of whiskey or whatever it was. My auntie, Sheila, had to bring us in a bottle of whiskey at one point for them. So, yeah, and then we know what happened. They had their agreement, and Tony was elected leader. And then, 94 to 97, we were preparing for government, working out our direction as opposed to detail. We knew we wanted to invest in public services. We knew we didn't want to raise the top rate of tax, we weren't going to do unilateralism again, we weren't going to renationalise, you know, all these things. We were going to support small and medium enterprises, you know, we knew, uh, support business generally, so we knew which direction we were heading in, but, you know, we, we were sort of working out the policy detail. We did some really extraordinary things during that period. I remember going to the Hayman Island, Rupert Murdoch, who a lot of people thought we shouldn't be associating with anyway. That was one of my jobs, was to associate with the, with the Murdoch empire. And I always had a huge high regard for him. Anyway, huge. And a lot, a lot of his papers and his editors and his journalists, you know, it was really high-quality people he had working for him. And we were invited to the, his biennial, biennial get-together of all the editors all the staff of all his newspapers all over the world. And we went to one in the Hayman Island on the Great Barrier Reef. And we went for a weekend. We did PMQs on a Thursday and then flew down there. And it was the first time Tony or Alistair or myself, we'd ever been first class on a plane. You know, we were just sort of, the whole thing was so thrilling. And then, to go, to happen, and then to go to Hayman Island. And we were flown to the Hayman Island by Paul Keating, who was then the, 
the, the Australian Prime Minister and met. We, then we had to get on a boat to do that last leg to the island. And we were met by, what's his name? Dame Edna Everidge. You know, that, who was Barry, a, Humphreys. Barry Humphreys as Edna Everidge, who was a, also a great friend of Rupert's. We, as we stepped off the boat, I mean, it was an extraordinary time. You know, be, Tony was beginning to be really noticed by an awful lot of people. And the very fact that he'd been invited there, people said, oh, a lot of Labour people, you shouldn't be yeah. doing that. You know, you're going to, you know, you're going to sup with the devil. But we just knew it was such a brilliant opportunity to make your case to 200, you know, really serious opinion formers. Now, Phil, on this podcast, we're clearly whipping through time quite quickly <laughs> um, because we have to, so we apologise for that. But let's, let's get to Labour victory. Tony Blair becomes Prime Minister and you go of him to number 10. Were you expecting that? Was that always the plan? And when you get to that building, uh, what surprises you? I had hoped to go in. His big thing was always no complacency to all of us. And I certainly wasn't... Get com- that first. Yeah. <laughs> and I wasn't complacent about, about, you know, assuming I had a job there. Unlike, I have to say, some of the chaps. But, yeah, I went in and I was given a weird title to begin with. It was called Special Assistant to the Prime Minister, which is an American. You know, people sort of think, oh, it sounds a bit sort of lowly. But it's, it's a quite an important... Anyway, Jonathan Powell brought it with him from America, along with Chief of Staff, which I don't think there'd been one of those in Downing Street before either. And we just had this extraordinarily close-knit team that had worked together in opposition. David Miliband. I mean, a lot of people, you know, names you'll know. Alistair Campbell, Sally Morgan, Jonathan Powell, Liz Lloyd, Sarah Hunter, Kate Garvey. I mean, there were loads of people that we took in. Peter Hyman, James Pennell. You know, it was incredibly close-knit, hard-working, loyal to each other and to Tony team. And we each had our... Why it worked so well is we each had our own territories. You know, Alistair had journalists, Sally had trade unions, you know, and, and, and the PLP. Jonathan had the civil service and cabinet. I had the interface with all these different people and celebrities. I was a celebrity interface. You know, I was just Tony's eyes and ears. People would ring me up all the time from outside. I was, I was the big tent girl. It was, Angie, keep those flaps open, you know, of the big tent. You know, we were middle ground, centrist. I was still living in Sussex at this time. I was commuting daily, you know, madly, uh, crack of dawn and late at night. But I would... Meet people on the train. I was called the train girl. You know, at the, at, at Middle England, you know, I picked up the voice of Middle England and I was able to bring it back into Downing Street. And I was, you know, it was, I, 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 I helped, I think, make some important decisions. Like, for example, the timing of the general election in 2001, which was in the middle of the foot and mouth crisis, oil crisis, foot and mouth crisis, yeah. And I came from the countryside. You know, my cousin's a farmer, and I, I just knew it would be, uh, you know, madness to hold a general election campaign in the middle of this, when, you know, thousands of cattle are being burnt around the countryside. What, we were all going to trundle around in a bus, sort of whipping up, you know, support? I don't think so. And so we did delay that election by, by, by several months. 
Now, I mentioned the introduction, you've been described as the most influential non-elected person in Downing Street. I, I wondered it, I suppose, what makes a Downing Street functional? Because you have a situation right now, whereas if we look to the present day, Boris Johnson is still in 10 Downing Street, but he's having, to, in order to keep his MP support, he's had to shake up his number 10 team again. So I think that, you know, if you think about this, is I think the second reset since he's come in. What do you think, you know, nearing the end of your time there, what consumed your time the most? Do you spend a lot of time dealing with personalities in the building um, more than perhaps people might think? There was a lot of ego massaging, which I was I, I could do quite well. You know, the, I, I've mentioned this before. You know, there was a little bit of a sort of rutting stag situation from time to time with some of the guys. You know, Alistair and uh, Charlie Whelan, uh, which, which I I always think they did it on behalf of their their you know bosses because we couldn't obviously have Tony and Gordon in that situation. <laughs> So, yes, I did do a lot of sort of, yeah, massaging of egos and preempting. I, I was so out and about. I went to everything. I made sure I was, you know, knowledgeable about everything. I, I've got, honestly, you know, I've got such a sort of repository up here of information, of, you know, people, what they were doing, what they were thinking. I was really, you know, I, I, I was big on loyalty. I was all, and I'd got really good political antennae. I could if there were people feeling a little bit dissatisfied inside and outside so I continued to do that job for him but on a sort of much bigger scale as we you know we were in government do you have a toughest day in 10 Downing Street oh god there were so many tough tough days I suppose my toughest day would have been oh I suppose it was when Peter was forced to resign Peter Mandelson which was a very, very tough day. I didn't think it was right. A Tony subsequently, of course, has said, you know, he wished he'd toughed it out. But the cacophony, you know, for the, the, the pressure for him to resign was so immense. Uh, but he was my friend. He was an, you know... I'm not sure Labour would be quite the same as it is or has been without Peter's input from the beginning. He was an extraordinary person, is an extraordinary person. And he was drummed out of office. And I'll never forget, you know, Peter saying, to, uh, Alistair saying to me that Robert Harris, the author, who's a great friend of, of Peter's, was on telly defending Peter. You know, Peter had to go out into Downing Street in this wind and his hair was blowing around, you know, and f fell sort of so comprehensively on his sword. And then he had Robert, you know, coming to his defence on the, on the telly. I remember Alistair coming into my office and saying, you know, ring your effing friend Robert up, because I was friendly with Robert too, you know, and tell him to get off the airwaves. And I did. I know, it's just so awful to think. And I rang Robert up and said, listen, Robert, you know, we don't think you should be on the... And, I, you know... I mean, Robert replied absolutely rightly, you know, two words to me. Uh, it's going to Yeah, I mean, it was, it was an awful, awful day. And we, you know, we dumped a good friend, you know, and a loyal friend because of a slightly spuriously, I, I, I think. So that was bad. Yeah, but there were, you know, plenty of bad days. And you've spoken in the past about how, obviously, when you're in charge of someone's time, such as a prime minister's, you know, you could often be blamed for intrusions, you know, whether that's family time, if, if you're, 
you know, if, if a Sherry wants to be of Tony Blair and, and children. But I imagine also it expands to other people who, who might blame you as a reason they're not getting time for the Prime Minister. Was that tough? <laughs> the toughest subject or the toughest... I mean, you'd be with Tony, right? And Tony, he'd say, whatever you do, I do not want to see that person or I do not want to speak to that person, right? And so that person would somehow inveigle their way up and Tony would be absolutely charming to them and they would say, look, I've been trying to get a whole... You know, I've been trying to get time with you. And Tony would say, Angie, and put his hands on his hips and say, I've been telling you to fix up for me to see this person. So, yeah, I did get the short straw <laughs> quite often, but you just took it on the chin. That was part of the job. Now, Angie, you mentioned Margaret as a woman with balls, the person that who had that nickname. When we're talking about your career, often Downing Street at least feels very male-dominated, but have there been plenty of women who have inspired you along the way? There have been loads of women that have inspired me along the way. I mean, famously, I have my, I have my, my five Margarets in politics and Margaret Thatcher a massive admirer of her Margaret Jay who's a friend of mine I met her when she was doing the Sunday trading bill she became a leader in the leader of the House of Lords uh, Margaret McDonough general secretary of the Labour Party balls of clanking steel Margaret Hodge again we know Margaret Hodge private uh, uh, select committee chair balls of clanking steel and Margaret Beckett you know, first female foreign secretary, from the left, by the way. And I, I met this wonderful woman, who, who everybody knows now who she is, oh, Ursula van der Leyen. And I met her for several years ago, and I think she was then the defence secretary in the Bundestag, and she had been a GP, right? And she, that's how she'd got into politics, because she was demonstrating, you know, lobbying Parliament. And she became an MP, the Defence Secretary. Now she's, as we know, head of the European Commission. And she's got seven children, right, as well. And then Helena Morrissey, you know, Newton Management. I think you've had her on this programme, Yeah, and even actually. more children, I think. Nine children. And she's run 44 billion assets. So I keep reading your name at the moment in various reports in the press because Downing Street have decided they need an Angie in order to help Boris Johnson with his premiership. Now, this is a former royal aide, Samantha Cohen, who's starting her job shortly. What would your advice be to her? I mean, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but to have balls. I mean... On this podcast. Yeah, on this podcast we're allowed to. Yeah. Yeah, big clanking ones. You know, we used to say that about our general secretary, Margaret McDonough. You could hear her coming over the hill from the clanking sound. So, yeah, really tough, bold, firm with the Prime Minister, tell him the truth when it's required. I mean, look, it's different Prime Minister. I mean, we wouldn't have to tell our Prime Minister to get on top of his briefs, you know, and to really do attention to detail, because he was that incarnate. You know, that's what he was as a person, he, and he was the driver of everything. So I would say, yeah, you know, use your judgment with him. Be a good interface for him. Make sure he's in the right place at the right time, doing the right things with the right speech in his hand. And the right tie. And the right tie. <laughs> and with a blood, you know, brush his bloody hair. I mean, just smarten the act up. You're not going to be change that, the, the person, but at least look presentable. 
which of course we wouldn't have to say that to Tony. You know, there was a, it's, it's a different order of things, if I may say so. Perhaps a more difficult project. A different kind of advice. <laughs> now, you left your role in Downing Street in 2001 and went to BP. What drove you to do that? I'd been with Tony for 17 years. And I absolutely wanted to cut it. I wanted to see if I could be a, a successful person, you know, without, without his sort of backing to, for me. And I'd always been attracted to business, ever since I'd been at university, when they'd said, my Marxist tutor had said to me, you know, whatever you do, don't go into, you know, the rapacious, international, you know, capitalist, <laughs> private sector. And I thought, right, you know, that, I'm going to have to do that at some point. And so I was very attracted to that world. And of course, in Downing Street, I had come across business and had to do interface with business. And I had got to know all these CEOs very well. And I was very, very attracted to two companies. One, I thought, the uh, first one was British Airways. And the second one was BP. Uh, and I tried to get out to British Airways. I had a very good meeting with Bob Ailing, who offered me a you know, very nice sounding job. And I did go to Tony and say, listen, I'm thinking of moving. This is about the year 2000, I think, 2001. And I said, I'm thinking of moving to BA. And he said, oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. He said, oh, I'll reflect upon that overnight. And in the morning... I got a call from Bob Ailing. My phone went early in the morning, switchboard, Dining Street switch, famous thing, put me through to Bob Ailing, and he was laughing. And he said, guess who rang me last night? I said, <laughs> he said, I'm not sure he's sort of desperate for you to just leave at this point. Because he was just a little bit odd with me, a little bit threatening. And then he said, you really shouldn't take Angie, you know, because she's not very good. No, he didn't say he that. He did, he did. Call it with Bob. I would he said, kill her. He said, she's not very good. And I, I look on her as a bit of an old retainer. <laughs> right, right. Okay. So I was, I was laughing, Bob. And I went steaming into him and I said, you know, you cannot do this to me. I don't have a sort of ball and chain around my ankle. He said, it would be a big mistake for you. He said, BA is going to go down the tubes. Bob Ailing's on his way out which was absolutely right. And he said, and in any event, he said, this new Labour child is only three years old and that you cannot abandon it at this stage. It's treacherous. So that was that kiboshed. So I knew that the next time I made my move, I had to do it a bit more secretly. I mean, it wasn't me that Tony... Tony didn't want to lose any of his people. You know, it's a sort of security thing for these prime ministers and they're quite ruthless about it and quite selfish about it and there's no question that they were all sort of incredibly used and some of our marriages suffered as a result of the hard work the graft we put in you know we literally gave it you know 24 7 and so I knew I would have to do it you know quite carefully and I was a uh, I approached BP I did this you know I actually grew up quite a firm pair of balls at this point. And I can remember being at a dinner at the American Embassy and the ambassador, Phil Lader at the time, 2000 this was, a uh, Thanksgiving dinner and he had tables for 10. And you sat, you went there and you sat down and you turned over your plasma, your card, and it had numbers on it. 
Some did and some didn't. When I turned mine over at this particular dinner, it had numbers, which meant you had 10 minutes. And then he would ring a bell and you'd move on to the next number of the table, you know, that you're on. I sat down and sitting next to me, I saw, before he came, I saw his plasma without having to move, was Lord Brown of Maddingley, who is, he was the CEO of BP. And I had looked at BP really seriously. I'd been, you know, reading about it, Googling it. I knew all of their statistics. I knew John's speeches. And he, he said to me, oh, when he arrived, he sat down and he said, oh, I'm glad I'm sitting next to you. He said, I want to pick your brains. And he said, you know, you know people sort of around and about. He said, I'm looking for a new director of communications. It's a new role. And I said, oh. I said, what sort of person are you looking for? And he said, obviously somebody who knows about oil and gas, knows about the communications business, you know, knows how to, how to build relationships with the public. And he said, in between ourselves, probably a woman, because not that many women have been attracted into the oil and gas business. I don't have enough female representation at executive level. And he said, do you know of anybody? And I said, yes, I do. I said, it's me. Just sort of out of my mouth before I had really thought about it. And he just he laughed. He said, oh, I, 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 what do you know about oil and gas? And I said, oh, I'm clever. <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can learn quickly. And at that bloody point, Phil Leader picks his bell up and rings it and I'm off. So that was it. But I, you know, I went back in. I pursued it. I said, you know, I rang up his chief of staff, who I knew, said, listen, I had this chat with John. What do you think? Do you think? And, you know, the rest is history. I became the director of communications for BP S several months later, I have to say, because we had to do a general election between um, that November and then the general election was in the May and then I left. I left at 9-11. That was another big day at Downing Street or, you know... And that was an extraordinary moment. So you enter the corporate business world. Now, I think there's a little bit of a perception in Westminster that when people quit politics, they often do it to make loads of money and have an easier life. Did you feel as though it was an easier life? Were the hours any better? Oh, no. Uh, I'm, I'm a 24-7 girl anyway. You know, I do not mind working incredibly hard as long as I love what I'm doing. And I did love what I was doing at BP. Yes, it was marginally less pressurised, of course, because not every single day you walk in and there could be a disaster, which can happen in, in, in politics, or certainly some huge thing exploding. So it was easier in that regard. I did do a huge amount of travelling. I mean, the, the, my next period of work, you know, I was, sort of, I was in the UK all the time I was, more or less, except when I travelled with Tony around the place, particularly after 9-11, you know, our big world tour build up the alliance against, against the Taliban. And so BP, it was just an extraordinary, you know, I, one of my, my main role was to go around the world and look at what BP was doing about their communications you know, on their sites. So I went to the most remote places. I went to Alaska. I went to Africa. I went to, uh, yeah, Angola. I went to all North Sea. I went to Australia. I went to South America. I went all over the world on 
uh, with BP, um, making sure that the, the communities in which we operated, we were doing the right thing. We were building the schools, building the hospitals, building the proper relationships with local people, doing microfinancing, particularly, you know, women, their businesses. I remember going looking at sewing in Johannesburg and just all these incredible things that BP was supporting, you know, everywhere they operated. So, and and moving from government to BP, I didn't find it in any way... I, I, I found it very easy in that John Brown ran his team in exactly the same way Tony did. You know, these were huge, big decisions being taken by, you know, really high-powered and very, very, very carefully chosen, very, very good people, very good communications. So it was an absolute pleasure to work for, for that company. Now, your current role is Edelman, and in that, do you feel that? Like- we're talking about the very big companies you worked through. Do you think it's similar skills that mean that you succeed in them or, or is it very different? I've just got one set of skills, which is uh, alliance building. And it's what I've been doing all my life. And it's what I'm still doing. And I do it at Edelman. And I've been there now eight, nine, this is my ninth year, amazingly. It's, it's an extraordinary, it's the biggest communicate, PR communications company in the world privately owned one in the world we've got seven eight hundred people here in London and I'm I'm called senior advisor and I do say to people that they this is something to keep your eye on for when you're you know in your 60s I'll be 67 this summer so it's something to really look for in 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 your 60s because you're basically a wise old bird you know you sort of sit there in the corner you know I've got to the stage now where I know I've got good judgment. And good judgment comes from just age and experience and a little bit of expertise. You know, I actually do think I know what I'm talking about now, which is sort of a huge relief, naturally, because you spend a lot of your life sort of paddling like bilio. And I, yeah, so I advise clients, I advise our staff. Um, I do a lot of mentoring there. I welcome all the new new arrivals, uh, take them up, speak to them, you know, give them the lie of Edelman land, but the lie of work land. Now, the final question on this podcast is one which I'm fascinated to know your answer to because it is what is worst advice you've ever been given, and I imagine you've been given a lot. <laughs> oh, God, I've been given so much bad advice, Katie, in my life. I mean, one, you know, of the one I mentioned earlier, Alistair saying to me, ring up Robert Harris and tell him to shut up. Another really bad piece of advice, and it was more than one person, there were several people giving, about leaving Downing Street. You know, why are you leaving Downing Street of your own volition? I mean, most people, as we know nowadays, in particular, you know, are sort of, you know, bounced out. But I chose to go, and people tried to derail me in that thinking and say I should stay in government. You know, it was it was such a, you know, huge big important job to be doing and why was I going off elsewhere not against the private sector but I should just stick it out where I was and I'm so glad I didn't because I've I've loved my life subsequent to to politics I've loved being at BP and at Anglo-American I love being at Edelman and I did have this other little stint at the Royal Academy of Engineering I was a director at the Royal Academy of Engineering to promote women in engineering and established the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. So I've had a really fascinating career subsequent to leaving number 10. 
I think perhaps, I mean, we're recording this podcast in Westminster. It's an important lesson in the fact that someone who covers politics every day, there's more to life than politics. There is certainly more to life than politics. But politics is also, you know, fantastically interesting and seductive. And I, I, I'm really, really grateful I was given the opportunity to be part of it. Thank you, Angie. <laughs> 